Welcome to Bit Splitting with Daniel Jalkut. Today's guest is writer and software developer Marco Arment. Today's show is sponsored by HelpSpot. Customer service is your best marketing. Make every ticket count with HelpSpot. Welcome back to Bit Splitting. My guest this time is my friend Marco Arment. Marco is or was Tumblr's first employee. He founded Instapaper and the magazine. He's uh, formerly known as a podcaster with 5x5's Build and Analyze. Uh, after he left Build and Analyze, he started a new podcast. Uh, the Neutral podcast was short-lived, and then he is now working on the Accidental Tech podcast with Casey Liss and John Syracusa. Boy, Marco, um, I just scratched the surface there. It's also been a very busy few weeks for you. Uh, I'm recently on my uh, podcast with Marco uh, with uh, Manton Reese. I said it was a very interesting time to be Marco Arment because of all of these achievements I just listed for you. Well, you were Tumblr's first employee. Tumblr was sold to Yahoo. You founded Instapaper in the magazine. Both of those have been sold in the past several weeks. Um, there's a lot going on for you, but the good news is, I guess, it's culminating in you having a lot less stuff to freak out about. Yeah, it's uh, it's really interesting because all this stuff is really, really new to me. The whole world of of selling anything uh, and and ending a project and being done with it. I I've never sold anything before before I sold Instapaper and uh, and you know ending a project and passing it off. It I've never done any of this stuff before. You know the, the most I've done is like leaving a job, but that's different because there's like you know you're you're just you just stop doing the thing you were doing, but there's other people that then just keep doing it. You don't really have to you don't really have to do anything when you leave a job. You just stop going in. Um, but right. with this, there's like handoffs and. And there's a lot of stress about deciding when to leave and who to leave it with, and and it's a uh, it's a whole new world to me. It's very strange. Well, it seem you're acting like it's coming off very easily. Um, so congratulations to you on all of the stuff that's been going on uh, recently. You know, uh, last the last episode of this show, I interviewed Buzz Anderson, our friend, also from the New York area, and it's kind of funny the way it worked out is. Uh, I interviewed Amanda Wixted, then I got the idea in my head, you know, oh, we did that iOS radio hour in New York. I should interview Buzz. And I was like, wait a minute, everything is going on with Marco. We should talk to Marco. And uh, in the show, um, the, in, in the last show with Buzz, I remarked to Buzz that the funny thing is, um, I got to know Buzz ironically through a kind of provocative blog post i made calling it call, kind of calling him out because he was um he declined to be on a podcast because he was working at apple at the time and was worried about what you know what would go down with his employer and i was thinking about this having you on this time the funny thing about me and you is you know we've known each other for a while now but it, i <laughs> Sort of coincidentally, I think our relationship goes back to me making a sort of, uh, again, sort of embarrassingly sassy, maybe like blog post about Tumblr. And you, as I recall, 
you came in, uh, this was like maybe f- five years ago now or four years ago, and you came in and you were like very professional about it. You were like, you're right. Tumblr's API could be a lot better. We apologize. And it was one of those things where you came in and addressed my concerns. And I was like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have made that like jackass blog post. <laughs> I was so scared composing that comment because I didn't ask for permission to do that from David. I just did it. And uh, and David was always uh, really careful about messaging and, and with the wording that we put out there to the public. And so I was doing my best to both, you know, do the right thing and, and look good and look professional and also try my best to do what David, what David would do so that he wouldn't have any problem with it. And so I wouldn't have to ask him. And, uh, and yeah, so, and I was nervous, but it, it turned out pretty well, I think. It didn't, I, I don't think it really sounded like me though, as a result. <laughs> so yeah, that, I mean, back then it was, I, I should have looked this up, but it was, it was long ago enough that it probably was very few of you still at Tumblr at the time. Oh yeah, I'm sure it was probably just me, David, you know, uh, Mark LaFontaine and support, but we didn't even know him uh, at the time. He was probably still, you know, buried in Virginia somewhere. We'd never met him. And, uh, and yeah, I don't even think Jacob was there yet. It was probably just me and David. Wow. Well, I want to talk to you some more about Tumblr. I'm sure we'll we will get to that. Um, but I like I have this habit now of delving back into the past, um, try to get a, a sense of where you came from. And I know from a recent episode of the talk show with John Gruber, um, and and also I sort of picked this up elsewhere in the in the past. But I I believe your family is from Northwest Pennsylvania. Is that right? Half of it is. Uh, I was never there, though. My my father's side is all from Erie, but uh, I was born in Columbus, Ohio. Um, but it was it was weird. So my my mother lived in Brooklyn until for for most of her uh, early life, and she met my dad out in California while they were presumably both smoking a lot of pot, uh, and then they uh, they hooked up, they got married, and they moved uh, shortly afterwards to Columbus, Ohio. So that's where I was born, and that's where I grew up. So you said they presumably were smoking lots of pot because what 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 inclines you to do that? Because they were in California, or because they were had some like hippie lifestyle tendencies, or it was just the, the oh all the of decade. the above, all of all the of above. The above. <laughs> so Columbus, Ohio, you were born, and um, I also know about you that. Um, you spent most of your childhood, I believe, with your mom bringing you up alone. Um, is, am I right that your dad passed away when you were pretty young? Yeah, he he was 36 and I was two. And he had a sudden unexpected brain aneurysm. And uh, and that was it. He died, he died, you know, that day. And so, you know, it was, it, it was different for my mom and my sister. They, you know, my mom, obviously, and my sister was older uh, by a couple of years. So it, it affected her more with me. You know, I was, because I was only two, it, it didn't really have, well, I, I don't know, psychologically. Um, I don't think it messed me up as much as it, as it would have messed up my mom and my sister. Um, because for me, like, I was so young that my dad is more of like, like a legend that I've heard about and I like I've heard stories about him and I have like a few little like quick snapshots of him in my mind but you know nothing really substantial so I don't 
you know, I didn't really feel it the way the rest of my family did, but it affected me in other ways. And, you know, like one of the ways is like I've never really had uh, a strong paternal influence. And so I, and that might be why I'm like not into sports and typical masculine things, because usually that's the kind of stuff like kids do with their dads. And uh, and I didn't have that. So, you know, I went into computers instead. <laughs> right. But I, I think also um, I think it. It affected me to some degree um, more as an adult. You know, I I started worrying because my dad died of a brain aneurysm when he was in his 30s. His father died of a brain aneurysm when he was in his, I think, 60s or 70s. I don't know. We didn't know him. But um, so I started thinking, well, wait a minute. You know, I, I'm at risk here. Right. And so there was, a, there was a period when I was uh, right out of college when I was getting these headaches pretty often and I freaked out. And I like... It was I, I I was miserable for like two weeks trying to figure out okay you know what's going on here. Eventually, I got my doctor to agree to to let me go get an MRI for for just screening for aneurysms, and I was clear. And uh, but that still that feeling. First of all, it was a relief because you know it's kind of a it's kind of a weird thing to die from, especially at a young age. And you know if you're thinking like, well, how do I prevent that? Well. The only way that you can really prevent it is to reduce risks of them developing, but you don't really know. You don't really have much warning. So I've always kind of had this um, – well, especially as an adult, I've, I've had this feeling that uh, life is very precious. And obviously some freak thing can happen to everybody, but I really want to make the most of my time that I have here. And I don't want to like just keep waiting and waiting and waiting before I do things. Right. You know, so well, you know, not to get not to get too dark on your on your developer podcast. But, no, but that's but you that's know, so something... that, but that, that does influence everything I do on on some basic level. Like I'm not I'm not walking around constantly thinking I could die at any moment. You know, that's that would be pretty dark. But uh, but it's always kind of in the back of my head, no pun intended. Like that, you know, I got to make sure. Like if there's something I I want to do, let's do it. You know, what am I waiting for? Right. And I think that that's, um, you know, my dad actually passed away just a few years ago, and the change in my life perspective was dramatic because he was, you know, the first person that was sort of in that inner circle of like, these people aren't supposed to die, right? Like this is, and then it makes, it forces you to confront that. And I don't know if that's something you can relate to because, because maybe from your description of how you kind of like incorporated your dad's death. Maybe you've kind of had a, you know, an unfortunate head start in that regard. But um, I think that, you know, what you're describing, you have something like, well, you know, because as you said, there's like a link, uh, there seems like there could have been a link genetically. It's not like if somebody, you know, if if somebody dies in a car accident, you don't think, well, that means it's that much more likely I'm going to die in a car accident. So, right. uh, makes you hyper aware. Um, I was I was curious though. You're saying you're you're mentioning how it makes you so appreciative of life, and, um, you know, when my dad died, my 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 son Henry was about two years old. Um, and it really changed my perspective about i don't know if it changed my perspective but it drove home the seriousness of being a dad and i was thinking about you know thinking about you thinking 
Um, obviously, having your dad pass away when you were so young must have made you think about, you know, growing up, like what, I don't know, what it would have been like to have a dad and, or, you know, have a dad who was still around. And have you thought much about it in the context of now the that fact that you are a dad? Is that something that you sort of reflect upon? Because I think, um, I think for me, like I, 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 I did have the luxury of my dad being around for my childhood, but you know there were times when my mom and dad were split up and my dad wasn't around. So I had some of that similar kind of like single mom upbringing. And sometimes now as a parent, I think with my dad gone, it sort of just drives it home to me how much I want to like do the job right or something. Right. Um, I've certainly had a lot of that. You know, it's... I mean, part of it is, like, I think what happens to every parent is um, you start getting more serious about your own life preservation. Um, so, like, you know, I mentioned how I got the I got that MRI back, you know, that was, like, in 2005. Well, I just got another one uh, because now I'm like, well, it's been a while. I'm now closer to the age that my dad was when he died. I'm I'm almost 31. He was 36. And I'm and I was you know I'm doing some research like okay what's what's the best I can possibly do here to to make sure this doesn't happen to me, and uh, basically there's as I said like there's not a lot you can do but what you can do is basically avoid smoking because that's really terrible and that increases risks. Um, so basically the the options you have to avoid this are avoid smoking and get scanned, get an MRI like every year or two. That's like the best you can do. And and you know I read something and it's like well but most people don't do that because it's it's cost prohibitive. And okay, well, so far insurance has covered two of them, uh, and if I have to pay totally out of pocket, it's going to be like a thousand bucks. What's a thousand bucks a year for somebody living in the U.S. with you know a good job? Like that's you know for me, like I view this as not an option. Like this is something that to preserve my own life and to preserve myself for the future of my son. Right. You know, I want I want to make sure that I'm here. So uh, you know, I'm going to go get an MRI every every year or two, and. Uh, it's no big deal, you know, <laughs> and it's uh, it puts me at ease. Um, but you know, so so besides that, and really, I mean, this is you know, it's a first world problem if I ever heard one. But uh, besides that, um, you know, what's weird with with me now being a father is that you know, what's weird to me at least, I, I think I put on a pretty good uh, a pretty good picture to the external world uh, on a shallow level. But internally, I, I really view a lot of fatherhood so far as, like, I know, I know things academically, but it takes me a while to really internalize them and, and become, like, natively decent at them. And I don't know if everyone does this. I, I, it looks like other people seem to have a more natural, fast pickup of things. But I don't know. I've always, I've always been kind of a late bloomer to almost everything in my life. So, uh Maybe that's that too, but like I feel like there's a lot about fatherhood that uh, that I know from culture, from books and movies, and you know from things that I things that I know that I'm expected to do, and you know th- oh this is what dads do, okay, you know, but it's almost like when <laughs> it's almost like on Dexter when he like pretends <laughs> to be normal. That's like right. I, I I've I've had a lot of those moments where I'm like, okay, what do I do in the situation here? Like, what what do what are dads supposed to do in this situation? And then I'm, I I kind of try to do it academically until it becomes native. Yeah, I think that's pretty. I think that you may have it. Um, you may have it more exacerbated by maybe you know less of like a of like a um, touchstone feeling of what 
you know, your dad would have done with you in a particular situation. But um, the truth is, in these early years, none of us, none of us even, you know, well, like your son right now is an age when uh, the same age that you were when your dad was still around. It's not like you can remember. Right, exactly. And that helps a lot, actually. Like, it, it helps to know that the little tiny bits that I remember about my dad, you know, how, how few those are, I figure, like, you know, there's some leeway here. Like, I, I have a lot, of, a lot of error buffer here. Like, if I, if I do something wrong one day, he's probably not going to remember it when he's 30. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is great. I, I relate to you, though, because I, I have always felt like, I've been, let's just put it this way. I've been impressed with the way that being a dad, just being like, you know, I've been in it now for almost five years. I have, you know, my son Henry is four and a half and uh, my son Matthew is coming up on one and a half. And I've been sort of surprised with myself. Like I am becoming like that kind of person who likes kids. <laughs> it's like, wait a minute. <laughs> I didn't think I would like, you know, because I, I, I went into being a, a father being like, oh, okay, well, I know I, I'm going to like my kids. But then I'm like, wait a minute, I kind of like all kids now. And it's just something I think kind of grows on you and you, you start to maybe just get a taste of that. Uh, like you said, you grow into the uh, to the job, I think. Yeah, exactly. But uh, anyway, going back to uh, early Ohio upbringing so your mom is doing this amazing job with you from age two onwards. She is raising you by yourself, by herself, right? And my sister too, and your sister. And how? Yeah, and how she's, old was, she was two years older than me. So you know, so my mom's basically raising two very small children. Wow, what a what a job! And um, you've mentioned before. I've heard you on other podcasts pointing out that it wasn't like. It wasn't a. Uh, it wasn't like your mom was rich or anything either. So she couldn't. Oh no, you know, my mom. She couldn't was, hire a nanny or or anything like that. Too. No, definitely not. We, you know, we were lucky that my grandparents were able to help out whenever you know whenever like like when she bought the house, her parents helped her pay for the house. You know, so like they they were there to help for the big things. But I, I would describe our 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 youth as uh, we weren't poor by any means, but I would say lower middle class. I mean, my mom, um, she did fortunately get some income from. Um, social security for my dad having died um but otherwise uh she got she was not even working for a while when we were really young because she couldn't really leave us at home or for daycare so she just you know let social security take care of that uh, for a couple of uh, a couple of years and then she became a preschool teacher at our preschool so that helped and then after we were out of preschool she was there a few more years and then she became an elementary school teacher at our elementary school. We never had her there, but, you know, so she was always, like, nearby, and she was always a teacher. She's following you, following you through your schooling, right? <laughs> right. And, and, of course, you know, she was, uh, she was a teacher at, at a relatively poor Catholic elementary school in Ohio. And teachers in general are not paid nearly enough, uh, but Catholic school teachers are really among the worst paid. I mean, they're, that's a whole other world uh, of bizarre church and state mixing and it's really 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 weird you know most of my childhood was funded by uh by a single parent working as a you know low-paid teacher at a catholic school i mean i think i think by the time she left that school when i was like i was like about halfway through high school when she moved to a different school um i think she was making like twenty eight thousand dollars a year in the late 90s i mean it was not a great salary for uh 
for any for somebody who was a professional with you know two master's degrees i mean it was it was embarrassing um but that's how the catholic school system works so um yeah so we weren't we weren't poor but we were definitely like you know lower middle class uh, at best and so actually i didn't even have a computer until sixth grade and the only reason i got that computer the only reason because you know it was that was like 1994 so back then you know computers uh, i was not early on the mac uh the computers back then were like you know the gateway 2000 back when you could still call things 2000 because it wasn't the year 2000 yet so it was really cool right um, <laughs> gateway 2000 and it was like a 2500 computer for for like a 486 like a mid-range <laughs> computer um and and so the only reason we were able to afford that is because uh, one of my grandmothers had passed away, and she left as inheritance to me and my sister like two thousand bucks. And so my mom said, "If you want, you can use that to buy a computer." She knew we wanted one, um, and that's what that's what we did. So uh, that's pretty much the only reason I got a computer at all. <laughs> so this um, was this was to benefit both you and your sister pooling together your your inheritance money to buy a 486 pc yeah it was one of the best negotiations i've ever done in my life uh, to try to convince my sister who really was not at all that into computers to try to convince her to <laughs> to pool together with me um that that took it took a few weeks but that was so worth it but what what, what was it about your life up to that point how old were you at the you said sixth grade so like 11 or 12 yeah something like that and um, what was it? What was your experience up to that point that even gave you the inkling of the idea that you wanted a computer? Well, um, it, it was pretty minimal. Uh, basically, uh, going through elementary school, going through that Catholic school, um, they had a computer lab that was full of ancient Apple IIs, and uh, and this was you know long after the Apple II was obsolete. But of course. You know, a poor Catholic school does not have new computers. We were lucky to have any computers. Um, so uh, they had this computer lab full of Apple IIs that somebody had donated at some point. And uh, so I played with those during the computer class or computer period, whatever it was, you know, in like fifth fifth grade, fourth grade. Uh, and then one summer we got to take one home for the summer because, you know, the school closes down and nothing's needed in the summer. So they, they let certain families take home a computer for the summer from the computer lab. I don't know how they they convinced wow. whoever yeah. to, to let this happen. but So I had one for a whole summer. And, uh, you know, you couldn't really do that much with it. You know, I, I had some games I could play, and uh, that was it. I didn't even know you could program it yet. And, uh, and then beyond that, I would just, you know, I would occasionally use computers at friends' houses. Like, I would use, like, my friend's crappy old Tandy. Um, right. Uh, you know the. I mean, it was these were these were terrible times. The radio, the Radio Shack computer, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. These these were not good times for computing. Um, so <laughs> yeah. So eventually, I was able to buy my own. But even then, like I, I didn't even know. I was into programming for a while, and but I was into the idea of programming, and I would get books out of the library. And of course, you know, this was back back in the you know early 90s your library would not generally have up-to-date computer books you know you were lucky to get some you know some computer manual from 20 years ago that somebody had you know donated at some point the library didn't know what to do with it so (laughs) i i would get these books out of the library about like how to program basic for some ancient computer and i would just read them i had i had no computer at first to even try them on and then once i got the computer 
I was no expert. I didn't even know, you know, the computer came with DOS 6 and Windows 3.1, uh, 3.11 for work groups, actually, for a work group of one <laughs> with, no, with no network card and no modem. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, this computer comes with DOS and Windows and it just boots right into Windows. I had no idea how to even get to a point where I could type in a basic program. And so I must have had the computer for six months at least before – and I, I would get issues of 321 Contact Magazine. Mm-hmm. And uh, they used to have, you know, those, the, like the, the basic programs that you could type in and, and then, you know, get something to happen on, on this useless computer that your parents had for some reason. Um, so I would get these programs and, or these magazines, and I would read these programs and I'd try to figure out what they did, but I still didn't know how to program my computer. And then like one month, you know, a few, at least a few months, maybe, you know, six months or a year even after I had this computer – there was one month where it had like a little info balloon on that three to one contact article for the month saying, did you know you can get to, you know, get to programming by typing in QBasic at your DOS prompt on your computer? <laughs> it was like they finally realized they needed to bridge the gap for the people right. who had no, no clue. Exactly. And that's how I discovered how to program my computer because Contact Magazine finally told me where to type in these, these uh, source code transcripts they would have <laughs> every issue. And... Uh, so I basically – so, you know, I started typing in QBasic, and I started – I had already familiarized myself with, with the ideas of the language just by reading books and never even having typed in any code um, in my, you know, hours of boredom and desperation of not being able to program and not having, right. not having the internet, you know, not, not being able to do anything except my homework, which I never did. Uh, so so I, I started programming QBasic, and I, I, I effectively learned the entire – knowledge i had about that just by constantly going into the documentation viewer uh, in qbasic and i i programmed in qbasic for a large chunk of middle school and high school just just every night i would i would play wolfenstein 3d sometimes and then i would and i would program sometimes and i would draw things in ms paint sometimes and i was terrible at that so um i i basically learned to program just messing around with qbasic and just going with documentation constantly and trying to make, you know, trying to make a Bomberman clone, trying to make, you know, random things that would make romantic matches with all the girls I liked in sixth grade, you know, it was, it was, <laughs> it, it, all the embarrassing stuff that, that middle school budding programmers actually attempt to do. <laughs> right. So you had this 486 from sixth grade and then you said you, it, you had it like into high school. Was that um, kind of your main, your main ride for, for a Several long years. time, yeah, yeah. Uh, until '97, I had it from '94 to, to, to late '97, um, and and during that time also, you know, this this is still Windows 3.1, which I yes, I was using Windows 3.1 in 1997, uh, <laughs> but this um, during that time, uh, one of my uncles had uh, had had handed down some old floppy disks he had because he he was he was you know long time in the in the programming business, but I hardly ever saw him. He had, he had handed me down these old floppy disks that he was going to throw away at work. It was Visual Basic 1.0 for Windows. Oh, wow. And, and this was, I mean, by, by that time, I think three, they were at least at version 3.0 or 4.0 by then. Um, so I find, so that was the first time I could do like GUI programming. So 
I I had this Visual Basic 1.0, and I did the same thing with that. You know, just self-teaching because I still had no internet access. Uh, self-teaching and and just making these stupid little programs and just spending hours and hours and hours in Visual Basic. And uh, I know everybody, every every programmer is cringing now that yes, I learned on on Basic and then on Visual Basic. <laughs> right. uh, sorry, <laughs> but. Uh, so you know, so I, I that that was like my second big wave of programming is oh my god now I can do like it, it was event driven and uh, and it was it was graphical and so I started doing lots of stuff with that um, and then eventually I started uh, eventually two things happened um, after after you know after this was long since uh, long since the, the top speed available somebody at some point just gave me a twenty four hundred baud modem. Uh, and, and which you know in like 1996 i mean it was some embarrassingly late time right <laughs> and, uh, and i i had no internet access and my you know we couldn't really afford a second phone line or paying 25 bucks a month to anybody and this was this was also before um aol was unlimited back when you'd pay like two or three bucks an hour for it um so there were very few options for just unlimited internet dial-up service so it was way too expensive for us. So for a while, I would just be able to dial into BBSs, uh, which I didn't, of course, know any good ones. I knew like one because there was no place to even look to find what BBS to dial. There was no internet. <laughs> I didn't have any. Right. <laughs> I was the geekiest one of my friends, so that you know they weren't going to be any help, and I didn't even know where to look for this stuff. So, uh, so I had a few, you know, sad attempts at dialing up a BBS with this giant external modem that was ancient, even when I even when I had it, and. Uh, Eventually, as a gift, um, well, f- eventually somebody gave me a fourteen four modem to replace that, <laughs> and and uh, I convinced one of my rich friends to give me a screen name on his AOL account, <laughs> so I could dial up. But because we only had one phone line, I had to, uh, and my mom, you know, she she wouldn't let me like do the the star or whatever to disable call waiting. I think it's just, like star seventy. She wouldn't let me do that. Because um, in case a phone call comes in, I have to right. get it. And it was an external modem with uh, you know a big speaker on it. So I had to configure the dial string to leave the speaker on constantly. So I just heard that that low lying static just the entire <laughs> time I was online. That's the soundtrack of your youth, huh? right? And if a call waiting beep came in, I would hear it, and I would have to then flip the power of the modem off so it would forcibly hang up and pick up the phone and, you know, give it to my mom or whoever was calling. Um, so I really had and, – and, and the only reason I was on the internet at all was because I was on my friend's account. And if he wanted to use it, he would call and kick me off. And, right. and so it was, it was a pretty miserable experience. And I went from that. Then, you know, for about a year, um, I finally uh, got a 33.6 modem, which was awesome. <laughs> and then uh, soon after that, in 1998 – uh, or rather, in 99, um, I got one of the very first cable modems. I, I had got myself a job um, just stocking shelves at a, at a little grocery store in my town. And, uh, and I was able to pay the $40 a month for this brand new high-speed cable service that was rolling out for the very first time. And so I had one of the very first cable modems. And it, so I, I literally went from 33.6 modem on my friend's AOL account listening for call waiting beeps to... 10 megabit wide open broadband at the time when no one else had that it was it was crazy and that's where your priorities were yeah exactly and and then then i i used that job to buy some computer parts and build myself a nice new pentium 2 system and uh, and that's that's how i started you know 
modern uh, modern Marco, I guess. <laughs> Well, I want to take a break and thank my sponsor again. This time around, it's HelpSpot. HelpSpot is a customer service must. It allows you to convert chaotic, disjointed email interactions into structured help desk tickets. HelpSpot also provides customers with self-service opportunities using an integrated service center. And its real-time reporting makes it easy to keep tabs on what's happening and identify problems and trends more quickly. Make your customer service what sets you apart from competitors and give HelpSpot a try at HelpSpot.com. You know, I know a lot of you probably know you need something like HelpSpot, but you just haven't gotten around to looking into it. You are maybe concerned about the cost. Uh, You're not sure which one is best for you. Well, the good news with HelpSpot is they have a free trial. Go to HelpSpot.com, sign up for the free trial, and if it works out as well as we think it will for you, You'll want to sign up, and the good news is it's not a monthly or yearly fee. It's a one-time fee. It's just $239, a one-time payment per user, and you're squared away with a professional help desk management system. Now, today I have a coupon code for you, BITS100. That will get you $100 off the purchase price. So especially if you're a one-person company or you only need one license for this, you can get HelpSpot today with this coupon code, bits 100 for just $139. Once again, the URL is helpspot.com and the coupon is bits100. Thanks again for sponsoring the show. Well, I'm getting the sense, Marco, that um, after making this uh, remarkable negotiation with your sister to buy the 486, that she may not have actually spent that much time using it. No, not at all. I, you know, she she would use she would type papers on it for school, which was some of my justification for having her uh, go in on it with me. But uh, no, it, it, I mean, it, it was even in my room most of the time we owned it. I mean, it, it was right. There was, uh, you know, she. I definitely got the better end of the deal on that one. Does she give you a hard time about that now, or or how's that how's that played out over the years? I think she has forgotten. I hope she has forgotten, I, and I hope she doesn't listen to this. <laughs> it was too—you were too young. Yeah, right. It's just—it's yeah. just buried. Oh <laughs> uh, boy. So uh, <laughs> one of the one of the things I know that you you are interested in as a grown man is um, automobiles, cars in particular. You you appreciate a quality car. You recently um, traveled to Germany to take ownership of a brand new BMW. And I could tell by your tweets about it, by your writing about it, that you just appreciate that this is a perfect machine for doing what it's supposed to do. Um, it made me wonder, thinking back again, trying to kind of connect back to your youth, was was there a time you can remember in your youth when you started becoming interested in cars? Or is that something that only really got on your radar as an adult? Um, I was always really into the idea of cars, um, but of course, you know, given given my background, I, I didn't really have a lot of access to anything fancy. Um, but I, I was also always, I, I've always been really, really independent, and I've always hated any kind of dependence on other people, which you know, often to a fault, uh, which is one of the reasons why I don't like hiring employees and stuff like that. But uh, I. Uh, I always wanted to drive, and I, I just wanted to drive so badly. I was that I was the kid who like I had my permit on the very first day that I was old enough to have a permit, and uh, and I got my license as soon as I possibly could, uh, even before I had my own car. And, and my mom was was 
pretty nice and pretty flexible with like letting me borrow the family car uh, to go, you know, drive around town and see my friends and and uh, stuff like that. So, um, but I, you know, I never had anything fancy until right. uh, I was I was halfway through college, and my mom said, um, "Hey, I'm going to get you a car for graduation, but do you want it two years early?" Like, yeah, of course. Like, because <laughs> yeah. it was, it was like you know, it was it was more practical for me to have it then. Um, so I was like, yeah, well, absolutely, I, that would be awesome. Um, so that started one of my great research binges, <laughs> and I spent basically an entire summer trying to figure out like, you know, what's the perfect car I can get for like, I think my budget was like eight thousand dollars or something. Like it, it was not a not a lot. Um, like, right, what's the best thing I can get for like $8,000 that's not going to be like a total maintenance headache? Um, and I wanted a V6, and I wanted a stick shift, and I wanted a four-door sedan. And even in 2002, when I was looking, uh, those were pretty rare, even then. And I, I eventually, all that research led me to uh, a Nissan Maxima, which for a while really was like the perfect sports sedan. Uh, for especially for people who couldn't afford like the, the fancy German ones, uh, so that that was that was my first car that wasn't borrowed from either my, my mom or my sister, and uh, you st- in fact you still see them everywhere because I guess they held up. You still see '90s Nissan Maximas all over the place, and they're fantastic cars. So that started my appreciation for the sports sedan, and so. I uh, I had a brief foray into sensible value cars after that when I had a Honda Accord briefly. Um, then I moved to Brooklyn, had to give it up, and I was very happy to because I didn't feel anything about that car. Um, and then Zipcar in Brooklyn started me on uh, a BMW addiction. Oh, okay, because you, you, you didn't have to do much to go try one out. You could just hop in one and say, oh, I'm going to take this for a ride. Right. It started out just being a slacker because the BM- Zipcar has usually a couple of BMWs in some of their like upscale garages, uh, but they're the most expensive cars they have to rent. They're like you know fifteen bucks an hour or something like that. So nobody wants them. Nobody wants to pay that much. So if you if you want to book something late, like last minute, sometimes that's the only car you have left. And so that like I kind of reluctantly got them the first few times, and then started like really feeling something while driving them. Like wow, this just feels great to drive. And now I'm ruined forever. It's like it's like going to a big monitor. Like once you go to a big monitor, you can't really go to a smaller one. Like you're ruined forever. Um, that's that's how I am here. Right. Or an S, or an SSD drive. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I'm gonna try my best to stay away from the BMWs so I don't fall fall into the same trap as you have fallen into. Although it <laughs> that sounds is wise. Like a, it sounds like a lovely trap uh, to be in if you if you uh, end up there. Um, but, but so back in. Uh, you lived in Ohio until did you did you live in Ohio until you went off to college? Yeah, that's right. And um, you recently posted a kind of a amusing blog entry on Marco dot org, which was your resume from back when you applied to um, to get the job that ended up being you know the the first employee for what would become Tumblr. Uh, one of the, and so I learned some things about you, Marco, from this uh, from this resume. So did Business Insider. Business Insider. Well, I'll, <laughs> I'll try to do a slightly uh, more nuanced take on it than Business Insider. <laughs> it shouldn't be hard. Um, but uh, I learned, for example, that you went to Allegheny College. Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, Allegheny College in Meadville, Pennsylvania, and you have a BS in computer science. So you have actually studied for this thing that you now do and was that something that you kind of like 
when you were getting towards the end of high school, had your computer interest just like kind of accelerated to the point where it was a no brainer for you that you wanted to go get a degree in computer science? Absolutely. I, I never wanted to do anything else. Uh, you know, once, once I got, you know, the programming bug, <laughs> like once, once I started doing programming a lot, like in, in middle school, um, that was it. I, I was, I was ruined. I, you know, I was, I was a programmer and, uh, and, and academically it worked out very, very well because I'm a slacker and I couldn't really get good enough grades in anything else to really excel in any other fields. Um, so I, I was, and my, and my school didn't offer any kind of, you know, my high school didn't offer computer classes at all, um, except keyboarding, which I did not take. Um, <laughs> but uh, it, it, all the programming I did in school was goofing off during like homeroom on the ancient Apple II that was in eighth grade's homeroom or on my, my friend's laptop because he had a laptop in you know the late 90s, which was unheard of. Um, but otherwise, uh, I, didn't, I didn't do anything in school, so I was like starving for it. You know, so I was doing it all at home, uh, but I had no education in programming. So I, I went to Allegheny College in, in Meadville, Pennsylvania, which is really the middle of nowhere. Um, although there is a very good sandwich shop there, but for the most part, it's the middle of nowhere. And uh, like the, the nearest big city is Erie. And if you've ever been to Erie, the idea of it being the nearest big city to anything is is, <laughs> is pretty impressive. And, and so, yeah, this is really, you know, really, really uh, rural areas. Well, I was gonna ask, I was gonna ask you what is it near, and then if you would have said it's near Erie, I would have then asked, well, what is Erie near? Right. We we would have to drive forty five minutes to Erie to get to the nearest movie theater or Olive Garden. Wow. My, my I, w- I met my wife at college, and our first date was a 45-minute drive to the Olive Garden in Erie. <laughs> well, that's great. Because that was fancy. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. So you met Tiffany at, at uh, Allegheny College. Yeah, that's right. Oh, that's that's romantic. I mean, in the middle of nowhere. This must have been, um, was it kind of like, uh, did the college make its own sort of like culture because it's in the middle of nowhere and basically anybody you knew would be with the college? Oh yeah, and plus, you know, yeah, like, you know, you know, you wouldn't really be exploring the town because uh, the t- there were the, it's just a really small town. There's not that much for college kids to really do in it besides stay on campus or go to the you know the house parties that are right next to the campus, and uh, and then it also snowed like crazy for most of the school year, so you were pretty isolated physically. Like, you really couldn't go out and explore because it would snow like two feet a week. <laughs> and that was normal. You they it would snow eighteen inches overnight, and nobody would even talk about it. Because that wasn't that wasn't newsworthy there, it was crazy. So, did you take Tiffany to the Olive Garden in fair weather or in two feet of snow? Uh, it was actually pretty reasonable. That that was that was lucky. There were many times where my friends and I would be driving home from the Erie Movie Theater for forty minutes um, in in my friend's uh, ancient <laughs> Acura Integra, um, just skidding all over the highway because <laughs> you know going like going the entire trip like in second gear i mean it was you know really really uh massively time-wasting conditions <laughs> yeah well uh another thing i noticed on your resume only because our friend glenn fleischman who has now taken ownership of the magazine after being its editor for uh quite a you know for, for the short life of the magazine he's been the editor for quite a long portion of it um but he pointed out in a quippish tweet 
Marco Arment, frat boy, <laughs> linked to your <laughs> resume. <laughs> so there I, I, I had to follow up on that. And of course, there I learned that you are a, you were a quote unquote founding father. Is that the terminology? Yeah, it was, it was kind of an odd setup. Um, like I, I never had to rush or get hazed or anything like that because basically, you know, freshman year, everyone's in the dorm and everyone makes friends with people who are in their dorm, right? Um, but then after freshman year, everyone kind of goes their own way. Your dorm floor splits up, and you suddenly realize, oh, crap, I have no friends. <laughs> and, and so uh, so sophomore year, a bunch, of, a bunch of us got together and were like, let's start a fraternity because we feel like we need this socially. And uh, there was some kind of paperwork thing where it was easier to bring back an old fraternity that had been on campus before or something. I don't even know. I had I had a pretty minimal role in it, honestly. Uh, like you know, I went to the meetings and paid paid a few hundred bucks in dues, and that was that was my role in it, basically. Um, but I uh, so you know I was in a fraternity. It it, it doesn't really. It, the problem with it was that we were. It was kind of like the uh, like the Al Gore campaign, or more more significantly the John Kerry campaign, um, where it's like we were united by what we weren't and we didn't really actually have that much in common. So it was it was a pretty weak bond with me. You know, so, like a lot of the guys there were better friends with each other. For me, it was like, all right, here's a bunch of guys who, you know, there's like one programmer in the entire thing and everyone else likes football. I was like, well... The, f- the football didn't wear off on you or did it? No, not at all. <laughs> so it was like, it, it, I didn't really feel that close to them. Like it was, it was nice that, you know, they were friendly. I was friendly with them, but you know, we wouldn't really hang out together outside of the meetings, which was kind of pointless then, but I don't know. It, it was, I, I'm glad I did it. I, I learned a lot from the whole experience. Um, but I, I mean, I wouldn't do it again. So um, I noticed, well, it, 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 it begged the question for me that it's the fact that it was on your resume was probably partly just like, oh, Marco was young and he needed to put everything he possibly could on his resume. Oh, totally. But it begged the question for me, did your fraternity association ever help you getting a job, big or small? No. No? Okay. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, I don't think, I'm not sure I ever asked um, but no, it didn't. Right. But I was just wondering if like you were, you know, so, so actually this is a good segue because uh, you, you graduated from college in 2004 and then help us bridge the gap here. I know at some point you were living in Pittsburgh because that's what your resume said. Yeah. So right after college, uh, like a month after I left, I, uh, <laughs> no, I didn't say graduated. <laughs> uh, a month after my oh, fourth he- year of college. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, in, in which I failed a, a required math class for my major and so had to just walk at the ceremony and then uh, take a college class you know, at a local college that summer and then get my diploma by mail a few months later. Anyway, after, after my full time uh, at college ended, uh, I, I, I almost immediately got a job in Pittsburgh at a company called Vivisimo, which um, last year IBM bought them, so I don't think they're still under that name anymore but uh they they were their their main product was this enterprise search uh, and clustering software like document clustering um so i worked there in pittsburgh for two years uh, right out of school and that was uh, oh i learned so much there i mean that was that was pretty much graduate school for me 
um, and they were extremely patient with me. I mean, I was if you ever if you ever work with a program or write at a college, um, it, it's often. It, it demands a lot of patience. <laughs> T- tedious, <laughs> yes. It, it's, uh, you know, I thought I knew everything, and I thought everyone else was was a moron, and, you know, I I, I was sure and, and that my way of doing everything was right, and, uh, you know, I was a typical immature college graduate, and uh, and they whipped me into shape, and, and they re- I learned so much there, because they were ridiculously smart there. It was a company founded by Carnegie Mellon engineers and, and a professor, so... You know, it it was a very very engineering driven culture. They valued engineers very well, and it was it was a pretty small team. I was I was like the thirteenth employee, so uh, so it was it was really really nice working there. I learned a ton. I I probably you know had it not been for uh, my desire to move to New York to to have a better geography for me and Tiff to be together, um, had it not been for that, I I I wish I would have learned more. I wish I would have had more time. At, at in Pittsburgh at Vivisimo to learn more uh, about this business, but uh, things changed and and uh, things went differently. So basically, um, Tiff was she was going all over the place doing various internships and stuff, and um, all of her work that she was getting was on the East Coast. It was Boston and New York, and uh, and so we decided, you know what, I, I, I you know we want to be together. We don't want this long distance thing anymore. And so I decided, you know, let's let's move to New York together, and uh, and we both agreed that would be the best place to be. So I moved to New York, and that's and then I I went to, um, you know, I arranged to have a job when I got here, and uh, I, I I took this job with this this young kid who I couldn't really tell how old he was. I could tell he was pretty young though, and and I couldn't really tell like you know is this job going to exist in six months? I who knows, uh, but. I could write web apps in PHP and Ruby on Rails, and he would buy me whatever Mac I wanted, and I could work on a Mac. I was like, "That's you know what? This is good. I'll take this job." What what a like in retrospect, what a uh, what an unlikely <laughs> break, right? I mean, you oh yeah, obviously you, you had your role in it. You, you know, I don't, I don't think that you know something. Here is what I think. I think so. You are alluding obviously to Tumblr. T- David Carp hired you as the first employee when it was just Davidville. And, um, and I don't mean that disp- dismissively, I just mean it was called Davidville and right, that's what it was. And then it became <laughs> Tumblr when you guys realized that actually Tumblr, the product you were building was big enough to take over all of your attention. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, at first we were doing consulting stuff, just building websites for a couple of, of, uh, of, you know, basically david's parents friends who who own media companies it was like that kind of thing um and uh so you know we built like there there was a startup called next new networks and uh they they made some some video podcast series for a while in like 2006 2007 2008 and uh youtube later bought them but um we did their first website and their web platform so like that was like that was like the biggest project that we worked on before doing tumblr and we actually started tumblr while working on that and uh, kind of ran them in parallel and then decided, you know what, we should do this instead and uh, we should drop the client work. So that's what we did. That's it's a, it's a great, it's a great story. And it's just so wonderful that you like left this um, company in Pittsburgh where you, it sounds like you were kind of like, if anything, you might've even been just kind of like, Oh, this sucks that I have to leave this company. Well, it, it was, there were a few things. I mean, like, you know, 
I still had a lot to learn. I mean, I, hell, now I still have a lot to learn. But um, I thought, oh, I want to go somewhere else and get more money. And maybe I want to be working in, you know, making web apps somewhere instead of doing like this enterprise software, uh, which actually was a web app, but I was writing it in C, which is not a great experience. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, so I, I had a number of those like, you know, young kid like, oh, I, you know, I can get more money if I go to New York. And uh, which was true, but my expenses also went up. So it ended up pretty much breaking even for a while. <laughs> So I know when I met you, um, Marco, I think you were living, yeah, I can't remember now, were you living in Manhattan and then you moved to Brooklyn? No, I, 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 when I moved to New York, I was very intimidated by the city, and I had a cousin who lived in Westchester, which is, for those who don't, who don't know, it's a, it's a county, it's, it's a big suburban county uh, just north of the city. Um, and, and it's full of nice suburbs with like trees and Lexuses and stuff like that. So, um, (laughs) my cousin had lived here and I visited him a few times and I liked the area a lot. And so when I moved to New York, I just moved straight to Westchester, which I was pretty much the only person between the ages of 18 and 35 in the County. And, uh, cause you know, it's mostly like, you know, families and older people raising kids and stuff like that so it's not you know this is not i was lucky that i had tiff already this is definitely not the place to like try to try to meet people the opposite sex and have have a nightlife i mean this was totally the wrong place for that but fortunately it worked out very well for me uh, because i'm a very boring uh, lifestyle person so uh i moved to first larchmont uh which is a town over on the other side of the county and then i met you I think yeah, at conferences while I was living there, and then I moved to Brooklyn. Uh, my wife and I decided, um, you know, let's let's try living in the city. Maybe maybe we'll like living in the city, and if if we never try it, we'll always wonder what it would be like. So let's try it. So we moved to Brooklyn. Uh, ended up liking some parts of it, but overall not liking it more than than Westchester. And then we moved back to the suburbs a year later. Okay, so so Tiff was living with you in Larchmont. So you guys didn't like move to New York in separate. Uh separate uh abodes no no yeah she she moved in with me one, uh, a few months after i got to new york oh great okay so yeah that's interesting so you you uh i i i didn't quite put put that all together that you had um already spent some time in westchester which is now where you live and it sounds like you're having a wonderful time there i've seen pictures of your house it looks like you're having fun like settling in doing 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 dad things like sweeping the the leaves off the deck and and stuff like that. Oh, tons of fun. <laughs> all the, <laughs> no, all it's the nice. Joys. I like it. Yeah. Um, one of the things I noticed on your resume that, that, that uh, stood out to me was back when you were applying for this job, yeah, I don't know why it stood out. Maybe it's not so unusual given the timing, that the, the year it had gotten to be by then. But you already had Marco.org. And these days, Marco.org has sort of become um, like a wing of your business, in a sense, because, you know, you you take sponsorships and you write on it in a way that's sort of... um, Sort of treating it like a job, I think. Like, you you want to keep the the, um, sponsorship momentum going. And um, what was Marco.org like? when you were applying to be David Karp's first employee. Oh, man. Um, 
Well, to give some backstory on that, I bought the domain name as soon as I knew such a thing was possible, uh, which I think was like 2000. It was it was uh, it was like spring of 2000 that I bought the name, and this was back when they were like 35 dollars a year to Network Solutions or somebody. It was it was uh, it was not easy to buy domains back then, especially for high school kids. Um, but I bought the I bought the site, and then I set up a uh, a bulletin board on it, so my friends and I from high school would be able to post crap on this bulletin board when we all went off to college. And actually, <laughs> the bulletin board cost two hundred dollars for the license. And uh, it was all Pearl and everything. And, and I, I, I actually collected money from all my friends to share the cost of the $200 bulletin board. I, I still feel like an asshole having done that. I should probably give them all their like 20 bucks back. But um, what, was the, what was the name of the software? Uh, Ultimate the, Bulletin Board, the UBB. It was ult- very popular oh, back then. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so um, I bought the domain. I put the bulletin board on. And I didn't really do much else with it during most of college and then at, towards the end of college i started experimenting with php and and database stuff and the very early beginnings of css were, were starting to form back then or at least i was starting to learn them back then so i started trying to mess with like let's let me make my own like articles site you know and i wouldn't call it a blog for the longest time because blog was really kind of a derogatory term back then um i i would not call it a blog and i'd be very upset if anyone else called it a blog and so I started writing these articles, and I, I had my friends write articles on the site too. And, and actually, that's that's mentioned in my resume how like I managed contributing writers. <laughs> I mean, obviously that that's you know resume exaggeration. Uh, I mean, it, I did, but it wasn't that big of a deal. <laughs> and and uh, contributing writers being like you know three friends, <laughs> but uh, and and writing a total of maybe fifty articles. Uh, but I did that for a while, and and it wasn't until we started Tumblr that I started having this tumble log that was on a subdomain and I started posting like almost every day, mainly just, you know, using this easy bookmarklet, um, to post stuff. It was, and so I started posting a lot and then eventually I realized, you know what, I'm posting way more on this tumble log than I am on my, on my official site. Um, so I just switched them and I just, I just relegated the official site to a subdomain that is never even used anymore. And, uh, and now I just have, what was the tumble log is the main site. And I think of, of all the things I, I do and have done and will do, uh, I, I really do value my site over all of them. I, I think it's the most important thing I do for myself, for my career, uh, because you know your name and, and what you write, that sticks with you forever. And you can build that up for a whole lifetime. You know, whatever, whatever software I work on, no matter what it is, no matter what platform it's for, it has a shelf life, and and probably in the grand scheme of things, probably a short one. You know, like wh- what if I had gotten into mobile software when I was in college? Then I would have written things for the Palm Pilot, and look where that is today. You know, like the, all that that I wrote back then would have been useless um, if I would have written meaningful software back then. It would have been for Windows, and I don't use Windows anymore, and so I would never even see my own software. Um. So, you know, my site, though, transcends jobs, it transcends technologies, and so I've always maintained, you know, since I started doing the site, and especially since I started making it bigger and bigger, I always maintain, like, I will not take a job that will prevent me from writing on my site. And that's one of the reasons why I don't think I would ever work at Apple. Um, You know, I, I will not take a job that will do that, and 
I will never let my site totally languish into obscurity. Like I want to keep it going no matter what. And I like I like writing a lot. I really do. Like I, I I've made this this analogy before. It's like it's almost like if I don't write for a while, it's like it's like mental constipation. Like I I have to write. Like I I have to get that out. I have to exercise that creative part of my brain. And uh, and and so especially like you know if I've been programming for a long time, if I, if I've had like a like a three day programming binge, where I've gotten a lot of coding done. Then I will usually take a few days off and write a lot because that's like flipping back, you know. So it's always, it's always a very, very important part of what I do, and uh, and and I, I'm doing my best to never, never let anything ruin that. You know, it took me a long time to even allow ads on the site because I was I was afraid it would ruin it. Yeah, I, I don't think it has, and I, and I hope it continues not to. Um, but you know, that's it, it is by far the most important thing I do. That's that's interesting to know, and I think that especially in the wake of all these um, all of these real big shakeups in the other businesses that you've started, um, you know, people are quipping on Twitter like, "What's Marco going to sell next?" And clearly, <laughs> Marco.org will never be sold. No, never. Um, it's like selling your soul. It sounds like would is what that would be, uh, almost literally equivalent to. Uh, and, you know, it's kind of a, in a sense, it's kind of a protection against being sold that it is so personal, right? It's like, it's, my, it's your name. It's got your name right. on it's, it. So it's not like appletips.info. Like, it's it's right. me, and it's my site, and it's, you know, like, and I've heard Gruber say this a lot, too. Like, it's, my site is not about Apple. My site is about what I like at that time and what I feel like writing about. And, and so I don't restrict my topics to just Apple, and if in 10 years Apple is no longer relevant my site will still exist. It will still be Marco.org, and I will still be writing about whatever I care about then. And uh, and I, I hope to be doing that my whole life. Yeah. Well, I think um, you know, I think Gruber, obviously, with Daring Fireball, he is a great example of this style of like thoughtful articles and links that don't have a clear sort of boundary to what the scope of them is, and. I've always sort of appreciated that. And I have to say, when I saw the way that you were starting to grow Marco.org, because it didn't used to be as nearly as prolific, or at least it didn't seem to be going for the same kind of um, uh, self-edited, maybe kind of style. I don't know if that's fair or yeah, not. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it wasn't, it, it didn't really start, it, it, it wasn't really what it is now. Um, it That didn't really start until maybe 2010. Uh-huh. Well, when I saw you doing it, I I have to I have to say that was part of what started making me think. Hey, well, that's you know essentially what bit splitting is for me is I didn't put, I didn't call it jalkit.org or daniel.org, but it's kind of like me saying, hey, I could do my whatever the heck I want to site. So um, I have to say thank you, Marco, because that was you know you I I I haven't I don't think I've explicitly thanked john for it but you know the combination of john doing it you doing it sort of like adds up i think to be a good example of and and obviously there's other people who do similar things but um it's a good reminder to folks out there i think that you can own at least one domain and nobody else can tell you what's going to go on that site Exactly, and and I certainly you know I owe a lot to to Gruber as well because he you know I, I, I regardless of what um, anyone thinks about you know his opinions and if you disagree with him the guy really defined this category of of not just not Apple blogs but of individuals who write 
in this kind of style he he defined the business model of having these like sponsored rss links like there's there's so much that was inspired by that site uh that's out there now and yeah. uh it's and you can't minimize that and uh, you know but but you know getting back to a thing you just said um about owning your domain like that's important too you know if I always get get a little bit worried when when something big in technology comes about and gets huge and starts competing with blogging uh, or with with individual blogs. And you know, one example of that would be Facebook, uh, where you know you 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 really want or fa- Facebook is trying very hard and succeeding to a great degree in trying to push everyone's writing into their own little platform that's not public, it's not open, it's not a standard. And, and so it's kind of it's kind of locked in there, and I really really don't like that. And because the, the reality is, Facebook is younger than the internet, and the internet will be older than Facebook, or rather, the the internet will outlast Facebook. Um, Facebook is temporary. Everything on the internet is temporary. The whole thing that makes this business so awesome is that it's it's like raging forest fires constantly. It, there is always some portion of this business that has just been destroyed by some kind of disruption or some kind of market problem or something, and then all this new growth can then rush in and take it. And that's one of the reasons that makes our business so interesting, and it's one of the things that's that's you know one of the reasons why riches are made and lost so quickly in this business and why products come and go so quickly because it's in this constant state of, of destruction and rebirth. And so to tie anything of yours that's important to you to any major platform is really unwise in the long term uh, because those major platforms won't last. The internet will last. Facebook won't. And it might take a while, but you know the internet will be here. And even if Facebook either goes away or becomes something that nobody wants, like MySpace. Um, so you know, it, be, in, in serving that goal, I'm generally very anti-network, anti-platform. Um, you know, I don't, I don't want to put my writing and and my thoughts and and a whole bunch of my time into your platform. You know, I, like I got a, I got a lot of crap when when I started Neutral, uh, my my car podcast that was short lived. But I got a lot of crap when we started that uh, outside of a podcast network. Because I, I was on 5x5 five five for a while with Build and Analyze, and that was fine, but that ended. And uh, and, and I, I know I'm telling you this is, is awesome because I know you agree with almost all of this. But, <laughs> um, you know, I started the next podcast, and I'm like, you know what? Let me try to do it on my own. What do I really need a network for? You know, and maybe the answer is something, and I'll find that out. But let me try it first. Let me just see, do I really need a network? Can I do this on my own? And, and is it going to be that much more work to do it on my own? And generally speaking, uh, most of the things I've tried to do on my own, I've been able to do. And there's all these people who are trying to interject themselves as, as intermediaries or trying to take what you make, take your time, take your attention, whatever, and lock it in so that they can benefit from it. And I find those business models kind of disgusting, and I, and I, I don't want to be part of them, and I don't want to contribute to them, and I don't want my stuff locked away in their systems forever. And so that's why, like, you know, you might argue that Tumblr is one of those systems, but it's not because you can get your stuff out really easily. And with Tumblr, I mean, yeah, if you use the, if you use a a yourname.tumblr.com domain, then that's going to be hard to ever point anywhere else. But 
you know, if you buy a domain name, you can point it to any host you want. And so if you want to have a site or a blog, you can host it on Tumblr or on Squarespace or on anything. You can host it anywhere you want as long as you're able to move it easily. And so, you know, I, I try to, you know, only outsource things that are easily moved away from, if that makes yeah. sense. Mm-hmm. You know, I have my own domain. It points to an email service that's not Gmail. Uh, so, you know, my email address is stable and is portable. My site is stable and portable. Like, it, everything, I, tr- I try to make everything easily portable so that not if, but when big services shift and change and die off, I can just pick up my stuff and move it and I'm fine and nobody notices. It's kind of a brilliant, it, it reveals a brilliance of the internet system that this extremely modest investment these days in particular in a domain name is like the 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 bottleneck asset for completely owning your entire identity right it's like like you were saying you 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 can go to tumblr you can you can register for a free blog and pay 10 dollars a year or whatever and yet own the ability ultimately to control everything down to email that goes through that domain um that you know the the this obvious stuff we're using domains for today like websites but also anything else that comes down in the, in the future that has to do with that name um so it's a really good argument i think for just buy a domain name right just own a domain name first and foremost whatever you do and attach that to whatever you know whatever you feel like but just at least own the name, ten bucks a year, right? Right, because you know people, people just they you. A lot of people think that things are permanent when they're not. Uh, you know, another common example is like people who who make a lot of, of personal and professional contacts using like their their work email address. You know, if your email address is so and so at apple dot com, because you've always been at Apple. Well, then when two years from now you leave Apple, uh, I don't know how to get in touch with you. Right, you know, and like they're like so many people do that where they like they'll they'll tie their identity to something like that that is fleeting, or you know back in in the olden days, people used to do that with their colleges, you know you had your college email address, and uh well, yeah, so there's a lot of people from college who I don't know how to reach uh at least until the Facebook happened um for you know for that same reason, and now, what happens if Facebook goes away in ten years, right, you know, think of all those connections that you'll have there that you'll then have to reestablish some other way. Uh, so there's nothing, as as I said, like you know, nothing is permanent, but people act like it is in a in a lot of times. Like you know, the same thing happens when you're developing um, an app or especially like a web service. Like I, there's all these all these cloud hosting companies. You you recently had a great discussion on core intuition where Manson was saying how he had moved off of Heroku and onto just VPSs hosted at Linode, and I love that discussion because. That's something I always kind of push for is, you know, just same thing, like do things that are easily replaceable. Right. If you're like you, the platform that you develop your website on, that's important. And like that's like that's really expensive to change if you have to like change the language it's written in or change the fundamental APIs it's written against. I mean, that's like that's a major change to have to go through. And you there's never going to be a good time to do that. Like you really don't want to ever have to do that. And if you just if you write your web app to run on a Linux server using using you know MySQL and some common language or web servers, like 
that's really, really easy to move around. And no matter what happens in the world of of hosted services and platforms getting big and then going away or pricing changes or anything like that, you're portable. You can move that around easily. And and you know if you can move to any web host you want you don't have to pick from oh do i use this special cloud engine or the one other one that's kind of similar to it you know you can pick from any of these things or you can build your own server and host it in your garage or whatever like there's you have all these options by keeping two portable commodity things or you can sell it or or you can sell it <laughs> yeah um so it's been I, I really I'm glad I got to talk to you right at this particular time because this is all fresh in your mind this 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 selling fest and I really admire the um ability you seem to have to separate yourself. I know you're not like saying goodbye forever in the sense that you know like uh Instapaper is always going to have your name associated with it. You get to own that forever. You get to and you you're retaining some it sounds like you're retaining some ownership and some uh advisorial role correct but you get to stop um you get to stop having like all of the buck stops here headaches um and then similarly with the magazine um you get to like have that be on your resume forever that you started a magazine you finally get to justify that (laughs) dubious claim that you uh, managed writer submissions (laughs) um but I'm trying to connect Marco Arment 2013 who can tear through new ambitious projects that started 6 months ago and end up being sold 6 months later with um Marco Arment who left Pittsburgh for New York and took as a job hunting technique I'm going to look on Craigslist and apply for this random job that this guy is <laughs> hiring for and there's you're obviously different people you're either different people you're either different people or you are the same person who recognizes that you have dramatically different opportunities before you how much do you think you're a different person uh versus just having a completely different environment to work in um i think it's probably a mix of both i mean i you know going going from pittsburgh to new york um i mean i my, you know my resume was very limited i only had one job out of college there were there were a lot of places that i applied that i didn't get into um including amazon uh, i almost moved to seattle for that but then they stopped calling me and uh i have to interrupt you yeah um <laughs> marco well, as we're recording this buzz anderson's interview with me has not been published but um, I just talked to Buzz last week about this, and he also interviewed at Amazon and also did not get accepted. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> and he's, he's great. I mean, that's – oh, man. Um, yeah. So, I, I mean, the, the impression I got from the whole process at Amazon, honestly, was that they were incredibly disorganized. Uh, it, was, it was just a mess. Like, the people were constantly shifting around. At one point, like, the guy who I was talking to – like his, he quit or he moved to a different department, so I had to switch to some other guy. I mean, it was, and it spanned like six weeks. I mean, it was just a ridiculous amount of time for this interview. It was, it was stupid. But anyway, I'll give you some, give you something to uh, catch up with Buzz about the next time you see him. I think, <laughs> yeah, exactly. he was, he was saying basically he had a great day of interviews. They, uh, he actually went out there to Seattle and interviewed with them, and then 
uh, they pulled out their uh, brain teasers interview questions, and uh, it was just like you know they're like, how would you move the moon Ugh. with the spool of dental floss and uh, <laughs> right one of the reasons i didn't accept the offer from bloomberg is I, I basically had two good offers moving to new york it was bloomberg and davidville and one of the reasons i didn't take the bloomberg one is because they gave me these ridiculous combinatorics questions and i bombed it i mean it, it was like you know take this fox in a river and you know tell us the formula to calculate how many possibilities there are it was like combinations of combinatorics and brain teasers it was ridiculous and uh and you know the the formal math was never my strong point i can do like the casual arithmetic you need to do to program and stuff but you know once you get above that to the all the all the theoreticals and proofs and everything i i just never was into that and so i'm not i'm not very good at it and so i just totally bombed those questions and at the time, I thought it seemed like I was bombing the interview, and that and that was going to be fatal. And then they offered me the job anyway. And I thought, you know, do I actually want to work at a company that hired me based on that performance? Like, <laughs> that, was, that was actually one of the like, you know, I wouldn't hire me based on that performance. So that was one of the reasons we kind of turned me off from them. Anyway, so you you, you did not you denied your own application to Bloomberg. Yeah, it's like you and your WBDC ticket. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy <laughs> oh so you have a high horse as well <laughs> so anyway uh, um you know so between between then and now a few things have changed i mean first of all obviously i've learned a lot from from the tumblr experience especially and then and then later from instapaper um but with tumblr tumblr was a job that i that i pretty much accidentally fell into and we had to learn everything as we went and so I learned at Tumblr how to build a web service that needed as little maintenance as possible, how to, you know, how to scale past one server and, how, and then how to scale past 100 servers and, you know, all, all the intermediate steps and, and how to do all this stuff. And then, and then I learned a lot from David, too, um, you know, how to present yourself publicly as a product, as a company and all that stuff and, and how to think about features. And, and, and along the lines, I, I picked up design sensibilities to some degree you know obviously instapaper 1.0 looked extremely different than than the current version and i i kind of can't look at it uh, i can't look at old screenshots it's kind of it's like too painful um but you know so I, I i've just been slowly building up the skills to do exactly what i'm doing which is building and launching you know web services with you know occasional ios apps involved as well so um I'm I'm pretty much developing that one skill for my entire career, and uh, so most of it is is just that I I now have the expertise to do it. it. It's not that I'm you know that different, and it does help also that I have a, a decent sized audience now, so that when I do launch something, it can get attention. Yeah, but um, I mean honestly. Instapaper launched when I didn't have a decent-sized audience. Uh, that Instapaper is what got me the audience. Tumblr really didn't because most people didn't know I worked on Tumblr um, at the time because you know it was all about David um, and all the all the news stories were about how young David was and they didn't care about the, you know the the programmer who was five years older and you know the next desk over. <laughs> so, <laughs> Last year's model <laughs> exactly. It's like oh well if you're you know if you're 24 working at a startup well, that's nothing new. If you're 19 hey that's something <laughs> new. <laughs> um, but. So, you know, the conditions are better now, but I'm also just more confident now. You know, I, I was not a confident person for, for most of my youth and, and even early adulthood. I'm still uh, – now, now I guess I'm, I'm confident enough to, to function as a normal human being, but 
uh, high school was was not a good time for me, confidence-wise. Middle school was worse. I mean, you know, terrible luck with girls, and socially I was extremely awkward, and and that even continued throughout the first half of college. I mean, it was really tiff that, like, normalized me. Um, but so, so what was the lucky break that had you actually meet Tiff? Oh, that was just, you know, a fluke encounter in a dining hall. I mean, it was, it was, uh, similar to Tumblr. I kind of like, you know, kind of just <laughs> kind of happened. She had an ad in Craigslist looking for a PHP programmer <laughs> and you <laughs> were much. the only one that responded. <laughs> I impressed her with a black CDR full of Weezer MP3s. Oh, now we're talking. Okay. Say no, say no more, my friend. Um, remember how cool black CDRs were? yeah um so you said in your uh post recently where you linked to your resume from way back when you were applying to davidville you kind of worried you said i um i'm worried that i haven't changed much and i guess you were alluding to that a lot of the sort of on the face of it technical skills were the same or that you know you hadn't was that was that rooted in that or was it rooted in like um i because I, I listening to what you're saying here might what i want to say is the things that have changed are what you've sort of glossed over here which are that you actually have the skills that you claimed to have back then <laughs> pretty much right and <laughs> that you have the confidence that you wished you would have had um so that's something to go on yeah that's that's pretty much it that go that, that actually goes that goes pretty far. Um, the other thing uh, I think kind of maybe connects this all together as far as where you've come from before Tumblr, you know, I think the odds of you coming out of uh, Pittsburgh and coming to New York and just launching, say, Instapaper were negative, you know, in- oh, yeah. infinity. Um, but part of what's making it now maybe maybe accelerating your willingness and ability to take these new projects on is exactly what you alluded to in your blog post about the um, sale of Tumblr to Yahoo. You said that, you know, although you weren't technically a founder of Tumblr and that you didn't like have, you know, founders um, ownership of the company, you did have some stock options and you would be getting, assuming this all plays out the way we hope it will, you'll be getting some some money from that and that it will give you a a quote unquote safety net for your family. Um, I think that that's very powerful. It's something I can relate to because, um, you know, I've been operating over the past 10 years doing my own consulting work at, at first and then red sweater as a software company. And, you know, just the, like having the kind of, the willingness to take the risk to even like take time out of your day and do a podcast recording is all stuff that we enjoy as a luxury of knowing that there is some safety net, I think. Um, And for me, it's like I have this like modest amount of Apple stock that I left Apple with. Um, How do you, do you think that um, having the safety net presumably get even more safe will actually make you take bigger risks or do you think it'll just be more of the same scope of risk um i think i think it's going to profoundly affect what i do and why i do it but i'm I'm not really realizing that yet and, and i'm not i don't really know you know 
the the scope or scale of that yet. So, you know, basically I've I've operated you know, since you know, since I moved here and since Tumblr, you know, because I come from that modest background, I'm not assuming that I'm going to get much in the way of an inheritance. And so I've always just kind of, all right, I have to build a whole lifetime of of savings now, you know. And I've also I'm I'm very conservative with I'm I'm, I'm very risk averse with money and um and I don't I'm always scared that no well, not scared but I I expect the current boom time that that we've been in for the last few years especially with with mobile apps um which I someday you will enter this market uh, <laughs> I you know so I, I this this whole you know the the mobile app boom and before that like the web app boom um these are two big booms i'm expecting there's probably going to be a bust at some point and so i've always looked at my career as okay i have a skill that makes money today but what am i going to do in in 10 years say like what am i going to be doing you know what kind of job will i be able to get how much will it will it pay me at that point like will i still have valuable skills in 10 years or will the things that i'm really good at fall out of favor and something else will come up that I'm not good at um, or, or that I'll miss or that I'll be too old to get into because there's a severe ageism problem with hiring programmers. Um, and so there's – I've always kind of thought for like the last five years or so, whatever money I can make and stash away now, I better do it because this, this gravy train could end at any moment. And so I've been operating with that assumption. I've also been operating under the assumption that my Tumblr stock would never be worth anything because there was no guarantee that it would. You know, it, it was it was stock options in a private company that was, you know, a web company. It was booming up, but I had no idea. You know, a lot of those companies weren't worth anything at the end of everything. And, uh, you know, so with Tumblr, it was like, you know, signs are good, but I'm not in control here. So this stock that I have from Tumblr might someday be worth a good amount of money or it might be worth only a little bit of money, or it might be worth nothing, and I don't know. You know that was a big unknown on on my uh, you know my balance sheet, I guess. So I've been operating under the assumption for years that you know I have to make and save as much as I can now, so I can have a good lifestyle for the rest of my life when I might only be able to get mediocre jobs. Right. And so with Tumblr now, the sale in progress that you know, assuming it closes all right and. I don't really know enough about it to say whether that whether failures are possible, but um, you know, assuming that the that this deal closes anywhere near the numbers that it said it would, um, I can stop worrying about all that because the cushion gets a lot bigger, and so that constant pressure, you know, making my living the last few years mostly from the app store has been a roller coaster because the app store sales are a roller coaster. You know, you, you you'd have one month that's twice as big or half as much as the month before, and that's normal. You know, and so like to, to never know, you know, you know, as an independent, to never know what your income is going to be next month or next year um, is really very stressful. Especially if, if like me, you're trying to save as much as you can, and you don't, you have no idea what that's going to be. So now that the cushion's gotten bigger, I can worry a lot less about all that stuff. And so I can, I can, for example, you know, I'm, I'm. I'm toying with the idea of of what my next app is going to be, and I'm trying to figure out what the heck the pricing is going to be, and you know how what what's the business model going to be for this app? And there's a lot of options now. You know, when I when I launched Instapaper, there was free or paid. 
that was it. Now there's in-app purchase, there's subscriptions, there's newsstand, there's all this other stuff that you can pick now for an iOS app. Plus there's web apps and you know Stripe is is out now, so payments online are way easier and way better. There, there's something that's not PayPal, thank God, because PayPal is awful. And so there's, <laughs> you know, like I have so many more options now that I don't necessarily have to choose. Thanks to this Tumblr money, especially, I don't have to choose what's going to make a lot of money from the very, very start. You know, instead, right. now I can say, okay, what can I do that's going to be fiscally responsible? So, you know, I'm not going to like lose money from the start, but what can I do that's going to be fiscally responsible, but that's better long term or better for the whole product or for everybody involved, rather than just what's going to make me the most money this month? And so that extends past the product too that extends to creative pursuits i can do things like podcasts and writing where you know things that don't make as much as writing you know hit software you know i shouldn't be spending my time if money was my only concern i shouldn't be spending my time doing podcasts or you know spending six hours in a night writing a blog post and and doing research for it and stuff like that um but now i can do things like that that aren't necessarily as profitable as writing good software um, because I have that cushion. So it, what this is going to do for me, I think is just give me freedom, freedom in what I choose to work on in how I choose to allocate my time to different types of things. And even in the business decisions of, you know, how do I, for the things that do make money, how do I make money? And, and how much do I have to charge? And how much do I have to make? Um, so we'll see what happens, I guess. Well, it sounds like it, if, you, if you can keep that attitude, it sounds like it's going to be a nice uh, liberator for you. I think, um, Marco, you and I share, to some extent, this kind of like cautiousness, paranoia with money because um, I also, you know, for, for at least the first half of my childhood i was raised in pretty pretty money scarce environment and i've i've noticed like even with safety net it's it's pretty easy to write off a safety net as being enough you know so it's like it's easy to get real paranoid and just be like well what about when all of that runs out and uh, do do you think you can actually get enough of a safety net to like when, when assuming the money comes through do you think your mind won't start won't start working uh, along the lines of well that's not enough either? Oh, I mean it's never enough. You know, I mean that's one of one of the reasons one of the things that got me started on like the I don't know if it's a like a money addiction, but at least got me thinking about money in a serious way is when I moved to New York. You know, we could tell okay we want to live in New York. We want you know we you know this is this is where we want to be. And we started thinking about, all right, in the future when we have kids and, you know, where we want to have them go to school and stuff. And uh, housing prices out here are crazy. Yeah. And so housing price, like to get a house where we were at first in Larchmont, to get a good house there is a million bucks easily. And fortunately, we, you know, we moved somewhere that's not that expensive, but it's still, you know, in the ballpark. And uh, so we started thinking, all right, how do we afford houses here? Like, okay, so you, you start doing the numbers, you go to a mortgage calculator and you figure out, okay, what do you have to make? to be able to pay off a mortgage for like $700,000, you know, and, and so you have to figure this stuff out. And, you know, so if we, if we say we want to buy a house in this neighborhood and we want the house to be X bedrooms and stuff like that, okay, well then what does that need? So I started working backwards. This is like back in the very, very early days of Tumblr. 
started working backwards from that saying, okay, well, we need more money. So let me figure out some way to make more money. So I started doing side projects like that's, and that's how Instapaper was born eventually. Like, and so, you know, for me, I've always had that goal of, all right, I got to, you know, first it was, I got to buy a house. Um, and then it was just like, okay, well now, now that we got the house, you know, in progress, you know, what do you do now? Okay. Well, retirement funds, kids, college funds, stuff like that. So there's always like, there's always something you can cover. There's always something you can be saving for something you can, you can, you, you can work towards. Um, but as I said earlier, I'm very risk averse. And so my plan with the Tumblr money is actually never to spend any of the principal and to do what I can to live off the interest. And I know people throw that phrase around. Uh, and the fact is these days it's pretty hard to get good returns on, on anything, (laughs) especially anything that's not that risky. Um, but my plan is basically to keep operating as if I don't have that money coming. And once it gets here, don't spend it. That's pretty much it. Like, just never spend it. And then that, you know, that is a nice safety net, especially because then over time, if it does grow, all you have to do is not take out all the growth. <laughs> you know, right, like, right. <laughs> take out less growth than inflation, and you're coming out ahead. You know, and so that's my long term plan is I don't actually want to spend it. And I'm going to yep. keep working. I'm going to keep making money in my usual ways. And that's how I'll cover my lifestyle, my expenses. And that will always be literally a safety net. It's like, in case you need it. You know, you don't, you don't intend, usually, to have to use a safety net. But right. it's there in case you need it. And that's, it's there in case you screw up. Literally, in exactly. case you let go of the trapeze, whatever, when you shouldn't have and uh i think that's a really wise way to approach it and having something like that like it sounds like you're going into it with like a hard and fast rule for yourself um so you know marco i think we should wrap this up i just want to say i am i want to i want to just point out that look at this life you have lived so far everything you know people make jokes about muddy bags marco and especially now these days with your sold businesses and you're looking at you know some people are going to be listening to this podcast saying what are you kidding me this guy is going to live off the interest of you know some some money and we're supposed to believe he's normal but the fact is look at you you came from single mom family with barely enough money to buy a 486 computer and you know i'm assuming that uh Allegheny College was not like um, the most expensive, you know, upscale college you could possibly go to. Yeah, it was like mid-range. Yeah, you moved to New York when you and you arranged to have a job that you know pays for your expenses moving to New York, and then you just worked your butt off to get a foot in the door. And congratulations, Marco! I think you have done what most people wish they could do and anybody who says anything about where you stand now well i think they've told everybody exactly what they need to know about them (laughs) thanks so um marco i'm really excited to see what you're going to be doing um in the future i'm sure you've got something you're working on now um you alluded to as much that sounds like maybe it's a an app or can you give us any hints at all i can tell you that today i was writing a web app 
A web app. Okay. Mm-hmm. Look, so, I, I'm never going to stop working. I'm one of those. I'm one of those people like. The idea of like sitting on a beach sipping a cocktail for every day the rest of my life, that sounds like hell. I don't want that. Like I wanna I wanna do something. I wanna work. You know, and I wanna make things, I wanna build things. And I can't take a vacation for more than like two days before, you know, as I said earlier with like with writing, like my brain gets antsy and like I, I have to turn my brain back on. I have to do something. So yeah, yeah. I, I'm never gonna stop making stuff. Well, I look forward to all the stuff you uh, have in store for us and I appreciate that you are getting to a point where you will be able to um, do more and more of the honest work that you think is worth doing. Um, I really want to thank you for coming on the show, folks. If you want to get in touch with Marco, you can follow him on Twitter at Marco Arment. Uh, he's also on app.net, uh, where he scored the exclusive Marco. Um, also, Marco.org, as we mentioned, is his domain name going back all the way to high school and uh these days the number of other affiliated links has been shrinking rapidly as we mentioned um (laughs) but uh he's still working hard on the accidental tech podcast with casey liss and john syracuse you can catch up with them at atp.fm is there anything else marco that uh you have as far as links and keeping up with you that we can share with the listeners i believe that covers it all right well thank you so much marco and as we're recording this um we are just before uh traveling out to san francisco for the great wwdc week uh as this show is broadcast however we will be back at home relaxing and uh luxuriating in the sounds of our own voices coming onto our iphones and all of those wonderful stable ios 7 betas I hope so. And Xcode 5. <laughs> yep. All right. Thanks again, Marco. It's been great chatting with you. Thanks. You too. This has been Bit Splitting with Daniel Jalkett and Marco Arment. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review or rating in the iTunes podcast directory. You can find links and other show notes at the podcast homepage, bitsplitting.org slash podcast. Thank you for listening. 